If you're joining us for the first time, we are literally smack in the middle of our sermon series, Extravagant Generous Living. And we've been talking about money. And I just was reminded this week, you guys, that we live in a city where you and I have seen tangibly how good use of money could be advocates of justice and equality, but how bad use of money could lead to devastating effect. Amen? We don't need to look far to realize that money is not just money. Money is a powerful, powerful instrument, tool that can be used good or for bad. It's not just money. As I realized over the course of two, three weeks, it was once again reinforced to me that so many of us, the way we perceive money has been influenced by what we saw our parents do. Anybody? And sadly, for many of us, the example that we saw from our parents of how they approach money is so far from what Scripture says and what God says. I've talked to so many of you. If you're Korean, this is actually fairly common, who grew up in families where your parents lived above their means. Why? Because there are certain cultural elements that said, drive a car that you can't afford so that other people, God forbid, think you're not all that. Live in a house that you can't afford because, God forbid, people might not think. I mean, some of us grew up in cultures where living in debt and living above our means was kind of normal. And here we are in our 20s and 30s, and we're just like trying to figure out how do we do this, and we don't know any other way. For some of us, we grew up in families where people never talked about money. You just never, parents never discussed it. Parents never talked about it. And so again, we're just kind of left to figure stuff on our own. And then of course, there are some of us who actually grew up in families with an incredibly healthy biblical attitude towards money. For example, you have a budget. Some of us are going, budget, what's that? You actually have a budget. Like your parents taught you how to budget. And you have a budget that dictates where your money goes. Uh, my, just, my guess is like half of us in this room don't have a budget. We don't know what a budget is. We don't track our spending. We just kind of, you know. But for some of us, God, thankfully, placed in parents and families where we were told to budget. I mean, we come from a spectrum. But one of the things that I'm realizing is that grounding ourselves in what Scripture says is so practical, I mean, you come into real, it's so, it's just common sense. And so if you're not even a Christian and you're here this morning, what I'm going to talk about, you're going to sit there and go, that actually makes sense. God's wisdom makes sense. So if you're joining us for the first time, we actually started this series with the really, really enormous, enormous, enormous convicting insight, right? We started this by recognizing, and this is what Ron Sider, by the way, if you've never read his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, it's a must read, I think, for American Christians. This is one of his thesis or premise in the book. Look at what he says. If American Christians simply gave a tithe, can you put that up there, please? If rich Christians simply gave a tithe rather than the current one quarter of a tithe, is it not up there? Okay. There. Okay. I'm going to wait until we get the slide because I need you to see it, okay? I need you to see this. Okay, just listen and then we'll, we'll figure. If American Christians simply gave a tithe rather than 
the current one quarter of a tithe, we saw three weeks ago, I presented this research done by Michael Emerson, one of the leading sociologists, who says American typical Christians give 2% to charity and to ministry. There would be enough Christian private dollars to provide basic health care and education to all the poor of the earth, and we would still have an extra 60 to 70 billion dollars left over for evangelism around the world. What we saw three weeks ago is that just American Christians, forget about the rest of the world, just American Christians, if we simply lived biblical lives of giving away 10% of our income to God's causes, we would literally meet some of the most fundamental devastating needs that is hitting global, global issues. And we would still have 40 to 50 billion dollars left over. That's just one year. And I said this last week, it's, it's an absolute paradigm shift. When we look at the most incredible needs out in the world and we say, God, do something, the incredible thing is God literally says, I did do something. I have entrusted you and me with resources. Listen, to literally, this isn't idea, this is factual to meet some of the most pressing needs in our world today. And so I feel like sometimes God goes, do something. Well, why don't you do something? And we need to come to grips with this. And this is why we find passages like this. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. Yes, you will be enriched in every way. There is a so that. Why do you have money? Why do I have money? Small, large, medium. Why do we have money? So that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. You and I talk a lot about the kingdom here, the kingdom here, the kingdom, how God has begun his rule and reign to restore, renew all of creation. And the way that God does that is not by some supernatural means. The way God does that is not by raining down money from heaven. The way God does that is he goes, I have entrusted you with money, education, network, relationships, time, gifts, and talents. I have entrusted you to be my instrument to bringing more of my kingdom to bear. And when we hoard it, When we carelessly spend it, God's kingdom work of bringing more of his restoration and healing on planet earth. I mean, this to me is just mind-boggling, right? We have the capacity to do something about it. We would just... Now, so as I thought about this, this is a great sort of, you know, it's an intermission sermon. Because <laughs> you got two more hard-hitting sermons. Because today, I, as I thought about it, I'm like, God, what, 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 what do we need to get? And I'm realizing that what it is that we need to get is actually so woven through Scripture that it's not that hard to find. It's not a big secret. 
Here's the key to all of this, right? The, the key, and here's an example. And you find stuff like this all the time. And this, I'm going to preach on this more next week. Second Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul is collecting, collecting money from various churches to help the church in Jerusalem that is enduring severe poverty because of famine. Okay, so he's going around Asia Minor and collecting from churches. And this is what he says. He says, I'm not commanding you, writing the church in Corinth, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we'll find this over and over again. The way that Paul motivates Christians to give, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't go on their will. He doesn't go against their will. What do I mean? He doesn't go, I'm an apostle. I command you. Today's equivalent will be, the Bible says so. That doesn't work for a lot of you. Paul doesn't do that. Paul also doesn't play with their emotions. He doesn't go around with a, you know, sort of a slight presentation of starving, hungry children. And he goes, look at those eyes. He doesn't do that. Why? Because that doesn't work either. Or if it works, it's short-lived. What does he do? This is so powerful. He goes, think on his grace. Paul does what I do every Sunday. He goes, look at the cross. Paul goes, don't go home and take out a calculator. Honey, how much you make? How much I make? Do, do, do. He, he says, no, sit down. Not with the calculator. Sit down with the cross. And sit until your heart is reoriented because of his costly grace. That's, that's how Paul motivated. That's why your pastor doesn't come up here and I go, think of the poor... It doesn't work. The Bible says it doesn't work. I just simply point you, then me, and say, think on his costly grace. Don't sit down with the calculator. It doesn't work. Sit down with the cross. Why? Because think about this. Let me just break it down for you. The reason why Paul does that, the reason why he says, think on his costly grace is because, would you agree? Say yes, you know. Would you agree that it's impossible to not be generous if you truly come to an understanding of his grace in our lives? Would you agree with that? Say amen if you agree. Because here's why. Here's why. Here's, here's why. The reason is because, you know, first of all, what it means to be converted. What it means to be converted is that you and I realize that his kingdom is the most beautiful, lasting reality in the universe. What it means to be truly converted is that you come to realize that his kingdom is the most beautiful, lasting reality in the universe. That means that we don't have to do stuff to add beauty and significance to our lives by possessing things and getting things. You have it. You have it. And if you don't have it, it's because we don't get it yet. Is he your significance? Is he your beauty? The second thing is, you realize what it means to convert is you find your ultimate security in him, not your bank account. Because we've talked about this before. Our bank accounts, come on, you're really resting your security about your future. If Jesus and the kingdom is your security, then you come to realize, he's going to take care of me tomorrow. Can I get an amen? amen? There are people in our church, by the way, literally this is their testimony. If he doesn't take care of me tomorrow, I'm dead me. That's reality for all of us, but we don't think that, do we? See, that's why if you understand his kingdom, his all-surpassing love, his kingdom is the most beautiful thing, you'll give generously and instinctively. You will. 
You will. If you don't, it's because something else is your beauty. Something else is your significance. And for many of us, something else is our security. Uh, this, is, this doesn't mean you can't enjoy good things. No. Does this mean you can't save? No. It doesn't mean, we could do all those things. But here is the entire sermon series practically in yeah, these words. I was coming. I was going to say four. Say this with me. Ready? Live simply, give extravagantly. Say it again more. Live simply, give extravagantly. This is what it means to live biblically. Live simply, give extravagantly. Now, as I thought about what is the best example in all the scripture where you find this intertwined tie between understanding of the gospel and beauty and generosity came to a very familiar story in the New Testament. Some of you have heard it before, okay? Now, I'm going to read the story, and then we're going to go by verse by verse, okay? So I'm going to read the story verse by verse. So just listen to the story. It's, it's short, quick. Listen to the story, and then I'm going to go verse by verse, okay? Here we go. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, and being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Let's look at this story verse by verse. And go home today. Understanding why it's the gospel that unleashes generosity in our lives. Verse 1. Jesus answered Jericho and was passing through. By the way, how many of you are familiar with this story? How many? Wow. A lot of churchy people here. Okay. It's a kid song, right? How did the kid song go again? Man, was he? Sycamore tree. See? Kimmy, I almost want to make you come up and sing that into the mic. <laughs> this story is not what you think it means. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Phenomenal singing, by the way. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Real quick, our problem, by the way, with your pastor preaching these sermons is that like, there's so much stuff that I can't like, go and like, I need to stop, and so there's like three minutes. So he wanted to see who Jesus was. One of the things about this story that I didn't realize before is you realize a life-changing encounter with Jesus can start with something as small as 
openness. We're just told that Zacchaeus just simply wanted to see who Jesus was. You see that? Verse 3. That's all it says, but it's significant. Here's why. Let's just break it down. I've heard a lot of Christians go, you know, if you want to really, really find Jesus and connect with Jesus, you got to be desperate. Your life has to be falling apart, which is true. I've seen people find Jesus because their life was utterly and totally falling apart and they were desperate. But here's the danger in that. If your life is falling apart and your life is desperate and you go after Jesus, the temptation is to go after Jesus for what he can do for you rather than who he is. The temptation is to go after Jesus for what he can do for you, not who he actually is. See, one of the things I'm constantly trying to tell people is this. Christianity only works for you if you follow him, whether he works for you or not. See, some of y'all here are thrown off today. Because you walked in here and your attitude is, my life does not working out like I planned. What's the use of following him? And truth be told, your attitude, my attitude is, I'll follow you if. And the problem with that is, if you say I'll follow you if, whatever that is on the other side of the if, is who and what you're really following, and it's not Jesus. Are you hearing me? See, that's why you look to the Gospels, right? And you see all of these crowd, they're, 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 they're enamored by him. They're, they're listening to him. They are looking after him. They are constantly thronging around Jesus. But they walk away and their lives are never changed. Why? Because like for some of us, we are way more concerned about what can you do for me and not actually concerned about who are you. Because here's the thing. If you ask the question, who are you? Immediately, the most important question then becomes, what do I owe you? If you're really who you say you are, what do I owe you? And that is uncomfortable. Zacchaeus is a wonderful story for me. For some of us in here, because two ways. One, you're not a Christian yet. Good news is sometimes all it takes is an openness. You don't have to be desperate and your life has fallen apart. <laughs> Talk to Christians who, who, you know, connected with Jesus when that happened. And they'll tell you, save the heartache, dude. Save the heartache. You don't need to go in with all kinds of scars and wounds. But for some of us, I'm telling you. Are you going after him but he's because of what he can do for you or who he actually is? Because if you go after him for who, what he can do for you, You're going to be disappointed a lot. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him since he was coming that way. How many of us grew up, you know, with the felt board lesson? How many of us grew up being taught that he climbed the sycamore tree because he was short? All of us, of course, that's all, right? We, we were short. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I'm, 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 I'm a good five. <laughs> I was going to lie, and then I saw my wife give me the death stare. Um, 
I'm like a legit 5'9", okay? I'm like a legit 5'9", with with shoes, okay? Um, (laughs) Yes, I have insecurity about my height. Uh, Anyway, uh, 5'9", right? If a five-foot person, if I'm in a crowd, if a five-foot person wants to come in front of me, do I go, whoa, dude? No, why? A five-foot person coming in front of me doesn't obstruct my view. I don't care. Zacchaeus doesn't climb the tree because he's short. He climbs the tree because he's hated. He's despised. He is. I say, why? why? Well, we saw it, right? Verse 2. He was a chief tax collector. Now, I need to spend like a minute here because some of you grew up in church and you heard ad nauseum tax collectors and Pharisees. I just need to, tax collectors, we think IRS. By the way, I read somewhere recently that people who work for the IRS, when their friends ask them, what do you do? They go, I work for the government. (laughs) So if you ask somebody, what do you do? They go, I work for the government. Ask them again, do you work for the IRS? They might... um, IRS is not what we're talking about here. This is way worse. Why? When the Roman Empire took over that part of the world, and the Romans would go and conquer various places and colonize them, one of the ways that they colonized them and subjugated them and held them under control was by levying enormous taxes. Historically, we were told that 80 to 90 percent they were taxed. And you thought living in Chicago was bad. 80 to 90 percent. That's how much they were taxed. In order to collect them and to just stick it to them, they usually hired the people that they had conquered to collect the taxes. So Jews had these people, tax collectors, who went around their fellow countrymen collecting 80 to 90% of their taxes so that Roman Empire could build a bigger empire. And by the way, they had the backing of the military. So what would they do is they would charge enormous amounts give the Roman government what they asked for and keep the rest, which is how they became wealthy. But that made them pariahs. They were extortionists, collaborators, traitors to the nth degree. And we were told Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means that he probably oversaw an entire region, possibly the whole country. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Ah, so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Church, I got to tell you, this is my favorite story in all the New Testament. Do you know why? Because this is the clearest picture of the gospel in all the New Testament. Here's a man who's despised and rejected by the moral community. They know he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. But what does Jesus do? And Jesus says, dude, come down. I have to go stay at your house. None of us in this room are getting goosebumps today. But in that culture, to say, I want to go to your house, to invite someone to your house, to stay at your house, and to eat at your house was not just a sign of acceptance, like, total acceptance, but it was a sign of an invitation of an unconditional loving relationship. That's why the moral crowd is so absolutely shocked that Jesus would do this with Zacchaeus. Now, think with me. When, when, when does Jesus do this? When does the invitation go? Read the Bible with me. The order is crucial. Does Jesus go, Zacchaeus, 
you're such an extortionist. You're such a cheater. You're such a nasty man. You have lived a terrible life. Now change your life. Clean yourself up a little bit. Well, come stay at your house. If you don't get goosebumps with this, it's because the gospel has become old news to you. When does Jesus say, I'm going to come? By the way, you have in verse 8, we read, Zacchaeus says, look, Lord. And he actually says, here is how I am changing my life. He confesses and he actually does it. But you don't have verse 8 first and then verse 5. You have verse 5 first and verse 8. You have Jesus saying, I must stay at your house. And then you have verse 8, so I'm going to change. That is the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is Jesus saying, in spite of your sin, I want a relationship with you. In spite of your moral record, I love you. Is that good news to anybody? The gospel doesn't say you do something first to make yourself worthy. Then I'm going to come stay at your house. The gospel doesn't say, make yourself worthy, will ya? So I could have a relationship with you. The gospel says what? You accept his invitation of unconditional grace. Then, then we get to work in changing your life. Is this good news to anybody? The founder of every other religion said, here is the way, here is the truth, and here is the life. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Founder of every other religion says, here is the way to salvation. Live a good life, obey the rules, then God will save you. Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm your salvation. You can't follow the rules. You're not living a very good life, and you can't even if you tried. So I came and lived the life for you. Here's a gospel in a nutshell. If you're not a Christian here today, please listen, 30 seconds. The gospel in a nutshell says this, because Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, earning for us the righteousness and perfection that life, such life deserves. And he died the perfect death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. Because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, when we believe in him, this is unbelievable, when we believe in him, God treats sinners as if we have done everything Jesus has done and suffered everything Jesus suffered. And the Bible uses the language of adoption and we are adopted in this family, made sons and daughters, and he sees us as he sees his son Jesus. Is that good news? You ought to clap to that. That is such amazing news. That's such a, don't let anybody, don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is about you doing better, working harder, making yourself look good, or that God's love is conditional. Don't let anybody tell you that. Christianity at the end of it says what? He came and lived a life I couldn't. That means this, he loves you, not some future version of you. He loves you. He loves you. He will love you is completely different from he does. Romans 8 says, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not death, not persecution, not even your sins. We look at our sins as something that would deter God from wanting to be with us. God looks at our sins as a monumental opportunity to glorify his name by healing us from it. Your sins can't even hinder God. It's not about you. It's not about me. 
It's not about what we do. It's about what he does. I need this in my life every day. Anybody else? Because like you, I am so tempted every second of my life to see myself as I see me, not as God sees me. I see myself as I see me, and that leads to a dark, confusing path. And my everyday prayer is, God, help me to see me as you see me. Do you know how radically different your life, my life would be if we sat here right now and you saw you as God sees you? That's why Jesus is asking to say in Zacchaeus, this is the reason why I love, now you see why this is my favorite passage, right? Why he says in Zacchaeus verse 9, salvation not will come, salvation what? Has come, past tense. It has come. Why? Jesus says, because I'm here. Salvation is resting on the work of Jesus and what he has done for me. Salvation means to come to God and say, God, I come to you not because of what I am, because of what you are, not what I've done, but because of what you've done. Not my payment, but because of your payment. Not my righteousness, but because of your righteousness. Is that good news to anybody? May we, may we followers of Jesus go to this every second moment of our lives. Verse 9, 7, I have to keep going. All the people saw this, and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Here's a simple test on whether you really understand the gospel of grace, or you're just a Pharisaic, self-righteous Christian. It's how you use the word sinner. In Luke chapter 18, chapter right before this, you got two people at the temple. You got a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says what? Do you remember? Thank you, Lord, that I am not like him. And I just be honest, truth be told, and a little of that in you, and a little of that in me, and tax collector can't even lift his eyes to the heavens, remember? He just, he can't even look up. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you right, right now, if you understand the gospel, you will never marginalize somebody. You will never, oh, oh this is good news to at least one person. You will not marginalize. You will not exclude. You will not judge. You will not. Furthermore, write certain people off and go, you're hopeless. Jesus. Can I ask you something? Be honest. Is there, is there anybody that you look down at? Is there anybody you go, you know what, you're beyond redemption. Is there anybody in your life that you go, I'm better than you. Is there anybody? Do you do that with anybody? Of course we do. Which is why we need the gospel. I got to keep going, church. Verse 8. I got to come back and preach this text sometime before. Because there's just so much here. 
And I got to get to the other part, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. I'll tell you this, a life-changing encounter with Jesus will always result in a changed life. Grace will always truly change you, which means for some of us, if your life is absolutely no different, you have to ask, if I encountered this grace? What do we see in Zacchaeus? The moral crowd is absolutely gassed with Jesus because to go home and eat with somebody, like I said, before wasn't just they accepted them, you enter into them, but that you were being invited to participate in that person's life completely. Think about the evening meal in that culture. <laughs> A couple times in my travels, I've been in cultures where they don't have electricity. So the evening meal is the highlight, right? Particularly remember my time in Africa 20-some years ago went to visit a small tribe, Maasai warriors, slept in their dung huts and hung out with the cows and goats and all that other stuff. But the evening meal is everybody gathers, you eat, there's no electricity. So you just spend time. You just do life until the lights naturally go out. In that culture, to be invited to someone's home and to eat with the meal was you're being invited to every single nook and cranny of their lives. This wasn't just like, here, eat a meal. (laughs) You come over to my house, eat a meal. I'm like, time to go home. It's 10 o'clock. You don't do that. You just, huh? You said, what is Jesus saying? Do you know what it means to have a relationship with me? He's saying it means to invite me into every single nook and cranny of your life. Jesus is saying, Don't you see me on Sundays? Work out the implications of the gospel in every single area of every single day of your life. Revelation 3.20 is one of these verses that we just kind of go, what's that mean? And a lot of non-Christians have used this kind of, that's what it says, Revelation 3.20. It's to the churches. It's written to the, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we will share a meal together as friends. He's not just saying, here's what it means to follow me, believe in me. He's saying what? He's saying, let me participate in every single facet of your life, every single nook and cranny of the daily rhythms of your life. Work out the implications of the gospel. That's what it means to be related to Jesus. Yes, work out the implications in regards to your money. Yes, work out the implications about what jobs you take, why you don't. Work out the implications about your friendship. Work out the implications about every aspect of your life. It isn't lost on me. When you read the New Testament, the, Lord, the word Savior, 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 appears about 20 times. The word Lord appears over 600 times. Enter into relationship with Jesus is not well, you can have, you know, lordship over the... Let, let me ask this way. What areas of your life do you have a big, fat, no access sign? Or as my kids do, do not enter. It's time to be rigorously honest this morning. 
What area of our lives do we have? No access. Do not enter. Mind your own business, Jesus. On it. Career? Future? Church involvement? Money and possessions? Friendships? Children? Marriage? Sex? And the list could go on and on and on. What area of your... Okay, if you're going, I don't know. I don't know if I have no access. Here's three questions. Three questions if you think about those areas. Question number one. Am I willing to obey whatever God says about this area? I don't know how I feel about it. Do you have no access, Jesus, when it comes to relationships? Why? Because I'm going to do what I want to do and how I feel like doing it and not. Second question. Do you? Thank God for what may ever happen in the area, whether we understand it or not. And third and most convicting questions for me, am I relying on something in this area more than God for my hope, purpose, and meaning in life? Parents, I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to get into your business real quick. We make our children, we make our children the utmost priority God idol. You know how it affects, you know how it affects us? Just talking to two parents or so honest. They said, Peter, I don't struggle with these other areas. You know what I struggle with when it comes to money and positions? They say, I want to give my children everything. And sometimes I know it's not good for them, but I just can't help myself. See how subtle that is? See how subtle that is? How do we know that the case is truly gone the genuine conversion experience? One way, his attitude, complete attitude changed towards his money. But how do you know his attitude changed towards his money? Listen carefully. Because of his actions. This is common sense, but it's so powerful. Your actions truly indicate whether your attitude is changed. Can I get a name? Somebody says, well, my attitude towards my money has changed. Well, your actions, however, say otherwise. Well, my attitude towards my children has changed. Well, your actions say otherwise. Well, my, your attitude has truly, genuinely shifted to the extent that our actions have. What is his actions? Verse 8. Just break it down a little bit. First of all, he gets way, way beyond the Mosaic law. Way. Well, Testament. The basic guideline for God's people was the tithe of the 10%. That was the minimum guideline. That's how the God's people knew. Here's how I know. I can safely assume that I'm giving away enough, 10%. And what does Zacchaeus do? By the way, don't worry. I'm not going to be like, so do Zacchaeus says, 10, 50%. Second thing he does, do you notice? Second thing he does, he says, all the people that I've cheated, that was a lot of people. Exploited a lot of people, defrauded, blackmailed. I'll pay back four times to which you're going. Why four times? Why not six times or two times, three times? Here's why. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and other books, the severe, most severe crime was stealing someone's cows, someone's cattle. When you stole someone's cattle, the penalty for someone stealing cattle, reparations, was you pay that person four times. So you pay them four times the amount of cattle. And so what Zacchaeus is doing is taking this Old Testament rule which said I've defrauded, cheated all these people and he's saying I'm going to inflict on myself the harshest 
penalty for what I've done. That's where he gets the four times from. 50% four times. He's saying literally, very carefully, please pay attention. He's saying literally, I'm going to go way beyond, here's the key, what the law requires. I'm going to go way beyond what the law requires. I'm going to go way beyond. So what do I have to do, Peter? And the question becomes, what can I do to honor God and his kingdom? He's not going, give me, give me, give me some sort of a, a, a calculation. He's saying, no, no, no. I'm going to go beyond what the law requires. The action is incredible, but don't miss this. It all starts with the attitude. Attitude, verse 8. I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could put the emotions. Of, it's a case when he says, look, Lord. He literally, he's going, look, Dad. Parents, you ever have one of your kids come up and with something go, look, Daddy. Zacchaeus look going, look, dad. Grace has gone through his heart like lightning bolt. And it's grace. It's gratitude. It's joy. It's joy. Look, dad. It's, it's being driven by delight. Zacchaeus' story is some of your story. Look, dad. I wasn't even looking for you. And yet you came and found me. Anybody testimony today? Zacchaeus is... And I love my brother, Dan Rodakovich. His testimony is, Pastor Peter, me and my friends in college, we were racing to see who could get to hell first. Is that anybody else's testimony? I was. And God said, I'm going to interrupt that. Not because you are looking for me, but purely because of my grace. Look, Dad, what's your testimony? What's your testimony? What's your testimony? It says, look, Daddy. Look. Ha, grace. Gratitude. And the reason why that's important for me and it's important for you is because of this. When you look in the Bible, it doesn't say anywhere outside of the, here's the minimum. It doesn't say anywhere everybody should do this. Just in the book of Luke, you know what we find? We find this. We find in the book of Luke an old widow who is going up to the temple, right? She's just rushing along, an old widow. And all these rich men, self-righteous Pharisees, were going up to the temple, and they had the collecting thing. It was like a metal can. And they gave silver coins, gold coins, other coins. And you could tell how much they gave by the sound it made. And there's this old lady who rustles up, and she puts in two pennies. And Jesus goes, stop. Everybody, you hear that? The disciples are like, hey, what? We didn't hear a dog. Ding, ding, ding. Wait. Jesus goes, did you hear that? And he looks at the widow and he goes, she gave more. Many on these other. See, the book of Luke, in one place says, Jesus, 10%. He affirms the tithe. In Luke chapter 18, rich young ruler, he says, give everything. <laughs> and then here, Zacchaeus says, 50%. Jesus says, Yeah. So you go, well, which is it? Is it the poor widow's offering? Is it 10%? Is it 50? And the Bible and the story of Zacchaeus saying, if you have to ask, what do I have to give? He's saying, you're asking the wrong question. If your heart is going right now, is it before taxes or after? Wrong question. <laughs> Calling you out. Is it gross income or net income? Say it with me. 
wrong question. Do you understand that, church? Do I understand that? Because all of those questions fundamentally is asking, what do I have to give? And our Heavenly Father is saying, keep it. Keep it. The whole earth is mine anyway. Keep it. Keep it. He doesn't say quite like that. I do. Some of us, tug of war, should I give? Should I not? God's going, keep it. Keep it. It's not the amount. Look at the parable of the poor woman. It's the heart that's born out of, look, dad. Do you know why this is so hard? Well, let me ask you, why is this so hard? For some of us, it's so hard because money is not just money. Like I said, Jesus, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You can't serve two masters, you'll serve me or money. Money is our spiritual righteousness for some of us. Money is our spiritual righteousness for some of us. What do I mean? How much money we make. Please, everybody, please, please listen for the next couple minutes. How much money we make. What we do with that money. The lifestyle. We use that to find our sense of worth. Do you know that? And do you know that every single one of us in here has this one thing in common? Do you ready? We come out of the womb going, what do I need to do to make myself feel better than other people? We do. We do. That's inherent in us. To get our sense of worth, we compare. Now, this is why money is so dangerous. Because one of the primary ways that people in our culture get that sense of I'm better than you is through what? Our bank account. Do you not know that? Do you not see that in us, in me, in some of you? Do you not see that? That we look at, this is crazy to me, but our culture goes, I have more money, so I'm smart. What? Two words to refute that. I won't mention his name, but he's a Republican, you know. Having more money doesn't make you smarter. What? Having more money doesn't make you savvier. What? Having more money doesn't make you a better person. But in our culture, when we move up economically, we don't just go, I'm better than you economically. We just go, what? I'm better than you. You think that's just in Donald Trump and some of the one percenters? It's in you and it's in me. How do we know that that umbilical cord to money being spiritual righteousness has been cut? Simple. You give radically and generously. There is no other way. That's the only otherwise we're looking at money and we go, that's my righteousness. That's my identity. That's my significance. That's my... Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give this. I'm going to do this. Why? Money is no longer my righteousness, my justification. Jesus is. Jesus is. And you can be free. Free from living for ourselves. Free from materialism and greed. Free from, I got to save extra, 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 extra in case a rainy day comes. Free. Does anybody want this? Now, there's some of you who are just doing amazing at this and you're going... Bro, you're preaching to the choir, man. Come on now. When is the sermon series going to be over? Well, good for you. I'm glad for you. I thank God for you. But for many of us, as I thought about you, and somebody said to me, Peter, can you get just practical? Please, just get a little practical, a little practical. 
I'm going to do like five minutes of little practical, then I'm going to, next two Sundays, do more. Here's what I was taught early on about money. I was taught about the 10, 10, 80 principle. Everybody say this with me. 10, 10, 80 principle. And the principle essentially was this. As a pastor, he said, Peter, in order to do money management in a way that honors God, 10% first give to God, 10% try and save, and live on the rest, 80%. Give 10%, save 10%. Now, percentages, don't get hung up on the exact amount because it's going to look different. But 10%, give 10%, save 10%. First of all, 10% give. Real quick, I'm going to come back to this next week. Do you know, do you know that John D. Rockefeller, who was the wealthiest person, the wealthiest person in the early 1920s, oil baron, he said the following quote, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I made had I not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. This guy died with $23 billion worth of asset. His asset was 1.5% of the entire American budget. Do you know why I put this here? Because here's what's happening to some of you 20, 30-somethings. When you tie the $100, you're like, oh man, that's like, oh, that's like two weeks worth of Starbucks. Annette, I wasn't that funny. Okay. Oh, okay. That hurt me though. Okay. I, I, I. Then you go up the income. And when you try and write $1,000, all of a sudden it's like, bro, it's still 10%. I know, but man, do you know, do you know what I could do with $1,000? Do you know how many Starbucks? That's like a month worth of Starbucks. Then, 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 then try when you're not disciplined, try writing a check for $10,000. It will be literally next to impossible unless you have disciplined yourself to go first check, I don't even think, whoop, to you God. Now, can I just say something? This is for next week, but I'm just going to say this. If God owned everything, who do you think he would entrust his resources more with? The guy who goes, I can't. So I'm just going to, I'm going to take care of me. Or do you think the person who says, it's all yours anyway. And I gave 10% when I was 10 years younger, making $20,000. So what if my income is double? I'm, discipline yourself. First check, right? Up. By the way, is this you going real quick? So where does this money go? In scripture, the tithe, minimum went to three places. Here they are real quick. Some of it went to the worship, nurture of God's people. Secondly, some of it went to helping the poor. And third, some of it went to meeting individual needs. I'm going to say something that's controversial, and some people are not going to like me, but that's okay. I'm one of those pastors that don't believe you should give all 10% to your church. Do you know why? Two reasons. Number one, it's not even biblical. So I'm not even one of them pastors going, give your temper there, do the church. I'm not going to do that. Because I can't in good conscience. It's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. I think the 10% ought to be divided in a number of places. Okay? That's what I personally believe. What I personally believe. If you are one of those people who are going, I don't know where else to give. This is a great 
church to give to because what we're doing is doing all three of those things. And I think it's a wonderful place. And thank those of you who support the ministry of this church because you tithe here. But if you're one of those people going, is he just wanting to give us? No, 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 no. That money given to all different kingdom assets. Percentage. Some of you can't afford to tithe. And I know you who you are. Some people in our church have problems just putting food on the table. And just giving 2-3% is enormous sacrifice to them. And I am so thankful for who they are. I am so thankful for who they are. Some of you have sort of inconsistent income. There's so many musicians and artists in our church are like, I made 10000 last year and then 30000 this year. Like, what the heck do I do? Waitressing, opera singers, everybody else. So you go, how do I decide? Here's what I tell them. Here's what I tell them. I go, tithe the low end of what you think that income will be. And if at the end of that year you make more, just give more. It's not that hard. Then third, real quick. Some of you in here, giving away 10%, is not affecting your life one iota. Giving 20% of your income is not affecting your lifestyle one iota. You know who you are. The challenge for you, and I, I give my 10, but the challenge for you is what does this mean to live biblically where you go, look, Dad. See, this is the reason why I don't tell everybody tithe. Because if some of us in here gave 20, 30%, we would more than make up for the poor in our church who only give 2, 3%. See? And God knows what he's doing. Some of you in here, I'm telling you right now, and maybe I shouldn't say this. Next two Sundays are for you, so maybe you might not want to come. <laughs> Secondly, no, you do need to come. Secondly, save. There's an infallible human rule. Spending expands to fill income. We just get by no matter what we make. Spending begets spending. Talked about this last week. I tell you what, you guys. If you're sitting there going, Peter, but I want to be able to care for our future. How do I know how much to save? I have just one simple rule of thumb. That is this. If what you're saving is far, far exceeding what you're actually giving, you're looking to your money as your security. Third, live on the rest. 80%. To which we go, how can I live on 80%? And the rest of the world laughs at us. Did I hear somebody say, come on. The rest of the world looks at us going, 80%. They laugh at us and go, your 80% is five years my salary. I got this uh, email from a member in our church who shouldn't be writing emails during work, but he sent this email, which I thanked him for. He says, oh, Peter, I'm sitting here listening to my coworkers discuss salaries. Peter, it's like a living illustration of your sermon. Everyone knows someone who makes more money than him or herself and feels slighted, even though they all make more money than we need and more money than the majority of Chicagoans. I love that your, I love your sir, uh, John Wesley sermon illustration about keeping your means where they're at. I may buy a frappuccino more often than I used to. <laughs> but beyond that, and child-related costs, I hope my spending never goes past what it is now. You are delusional if you go, I'm going to give more when I make more. No, you're going to buy more frappuccinos. I'm going to get... I'm going to talk about this in two weeks. We are so brainwashed into thinking 
discontentment, discontentment, discontentment. We are so brainwashed into thinking, I'm going to just confess something. You ever do this? Walk into a store, you didn't think you needed that until you saw it, and then you go, I needed that. Anybody? We are bombarded by messages in our culture that says living on 80% is not enough. Why? Because you need that. Don't you want that? You need that. So we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. Can I say that again? Our culture, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't have. Do you know why some of us are feeling pressure financially? Because our income constantly bumps against our lifestyle. We are literally spending to the apps. If we just lowered our lifestyle a little bit, just lowered our lifestyle a little bit, just lowered our lifestyle a little bit, you'd feel margins. But our spending is literally bumping against, and we go, God, I'd like to do something for you, but, you know, I just can't, what, afford to. Do you know why Zacchaeus was in that tree? Because he's despised. He's rejected. By the way, he deserved to be, by the way. What does Jesus do? He says, come. Come down. I want to have a feast of love with you. How can Jesus say to an extortionist, traitor, collaborator, sinner, come down so I can have a feast with you? Zacchaeus came down from the tree because Jesus went up the tree. Zacchaeus came down the tree because Jesus went up the tree. Galatians chapter 3. I am with this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. To be hung on a tree, to be nailed to the cross was reserved for the worst of all criminals, for the worst of all traitors. And yet Jesus says to Zacchaeus, come down so I can go up. Jesus comes down from the tree because Jesus went up the tree. You don't want to be generous? Ah, don't want to be generous? Not because we don't know better. Not because we're stingy and greedy. It's because the gospel has not penetrated our hearts. See, the gospel says Jesus didn't, I'll put it this way. Jesus didn't tithe his life, church. He gave it all. Where would I be if Jesus came and said, I'm going to tithe my life. Is that okay? I'm going to keep that. I'm going to tithe my life. But instead, the Bible says he became Poor, so that I might become rich, so that I can be generous in every way. He came down from the tree because he went up. He was accepted because Jesus was rejected. He was loved because Jesus was despised. 
Can I just end with a word of encouragement before I get done today? Is that okay? See, this is such an encouragement to me as a church because as much as I yell, I scream, and I nah to you, you're a church that desires to live this. This Sunday, before I walked up here, I picked up the bulletin and I looked at our giving statement. Don't look. Don't look. Do you know what it said? Our budgeted need per week is $12,906. Up until last week, our weekly average was $12,974. You know why that's significant? That's the first time in a long time that our weekly, weekly, weekly giving exceeded our weekly need. And last week... You church family gave $18,766 to the Lord's work here. <sighs> see, see to me, as much as I yell, I scream, and it looks like I'm going after you, many of you just needed to be reminded, Peter, please remind me of the gospel, will you? I don't need you to guilt trip me. I don't need you. Just remind me of who my security is. Just remind me. And that's what I plan to do for two more Sundays. Is that okay? Can I get an amen? By the way, some of you clap kind of half-heartedly. Almost $19,000 our church family gave last Sunday. That is incredible. That is incredible. I am so proud of you. More than that, I think our Heavenly Father was honored. Let's pray together. Oh, man. (laughs) There are so many people, church family, just in the last two Sundays have said, you know what, Peter? I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to step out in faith. People who have never gave are starting to give. People who hadn't tithed in a long time for no good reason for some, some very good reason, but for some just stopped doing it, have begun tithing. And there are a handful who have said, it's not about percentage, it's about sacrifice. And man, Peter, I'm I'm gonna blow past this 10% deal to see what God can do in my life. And are living lives of freedom and joy. And I am so proud. I am so proud. I am so proud of you as a church. I'm stepping up to faith. And those of us that are still wrestling, wrestle some more. Still fighting, fight some more. Your heavenly father is gracious and is patient with you and me. He knows your concerns. He knows your anxieties. But when our faith intersects with his faithfulness, I tell you something powerful happens as it is already in many lives. So before we give today, Will you take a moment, about a minute or so before we have the ushers come forward and clap?
collect and gather our tithes. Will you take a moment, just be rigorously honest with yourself and with God about where you are with this. Will you just do that? Will you just do that? Be rigorously honest with your Heavenly Father about where you're at. You're scared. Say, God, I'm scared. Don't want to. Say, God, I don't want to. I want to ask for increase of faith. Ask, God, help my unbelief. Help me to believe. Thank you.